Hello friends! I am coming to you live from a gorgeous spring day. I hope everybody got to enjoy some sunshine today because I feel like, I don't know, if you're like me, I am so blah all winter. Despite I take vitamin D, it's just not enough. And the minute the sun hits like my bare forearm or like my shin, you know, like those parts that you hide all winter because it's freezing, something inside me awakens. Like the creature, the goblin, like the happy goblin with energy that lives in my flesh suit. This is getting weird, but anyway, I'm just gonna run with it. The happy goblin that lives inside of me is awakened by the breeze of the the ocean and the bright shining sun. I don't know where I'm going with this at this point. Anyway, hello, hi. I'm obviously in a great mood despite having food poisoning this week. I was in the sun and now all my mental illnesses are cured. That's not true. Actually, on my way to come home to record this episode, I stopped at the coffee shop down the street from my house, but I was coming from work, so I had my car. Parked my car way too close to a fire hydrant, so I was already risking it. Literally within 10 minutes forgot that I drove, walked my happy little ass all the way home, and then realized, oh shit, I drove here. So I had to walk all the way back. And yeah, clearly the sunshine does not cure my absolutely raging ADHD. So anyway, hi, my name's Kate Ford. And this is the New England Gothic. We have a pretty light episode. I mean, no, it's not light. What am I talking about? Today's episode is going to be a little bit different than what we've done so far because I'm going to tell a bunch of stories rather than just one story. And they're all have, they all have a similar relative, okay? Without giving too much away. Also, Honeybee says hello. She is aggressively putting her paws on my leg right now. Very cute. I wish you could all see her. So anyway, I don't know why I'm like holding out. Like, spoiler, I, ca I can't spoil what the episode's about. It's like, why are you here then? I'm just going to tell you. So we're talking about the Borden family. Like the, like, you know, Lizzie Borden's family. Because this is obviously a fun, relaxed episode today. Please don't judge me. I'm in a silly, goofy mood. Like I said, the goblin is is awakened. So... The Lizzie Borden case, very well known. If there is a chance you don't know the Lizzie Borden case, I am going to go over it briefly. But, okay, I'm just going to get into it. I worked at the Lizzie Borden house, and I learned a lot about the Borden family history. And I found out that there are many true crime cases and other spooky things directly related to the Borden's of the famous Lizzie Borden murder. Now it's getting confusing. This Borden, that Borden, whose Borden is this? Let me just like rewind it back and I'm just gonna take a look at my script. Um, I cannot be trusted when I'm just freestyle talking. <laughs> All right, like I said, we, most of us who are into true crime or New England history have heard of the famous Lizzie Borden case because it's truly iconic. It's an iconic moment in true crime history. But did you know that the famous murders are not the only tragedy to befall the well-to-do New England family? There is, in fact, 
a lot of weird darkness, like I said, surrounding this family. And spoiler alert, this is an actual spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. There are many massively famous people related to the Bordens, like Winston Churchill, a few U.S. presidents, Post Malone, Brigham Young, the second president of Mormonism, and a few more that I'm going to save for the end of the episode. For the purpose of this episode and for the dramatics of it all, I'm just going to call it the Borden family curse, but I don't literally think the family is cursed. They're obviously... We'll just get into it. But a big family that's prominent in multiple countries is bound to have a lot of weird stories connected to it. So, Anyway, for the sake of today's episode, I'm going to cover a few dark New England history tales that are closely related to the famous Borden murders and or, you know, it's all related because they're all relatives, but all of these stories are taking place within, I would say, a 50-mile radius of each other, Fall River and Rhode Island. And if you aren't familiar with New England geography... Fall River is basically touching Rhode Island. A lot of times you have to drive through Fall River to get... So I live in Providence, Rhode Island. You have to drive through Fall River to get to other parts of Rhode Island. So they're all very close. Per usual, I want to add some trigger warnings for today. It's, you know, the usual true crime stuff. However, there are mentions of suicide and children being harmed. So just a warning. So like I said... My pets just choose the time I'm recording to run rampant. I'm just kidding. Anyway, so like I mentioned earlier, most people are familiar with the Lizzie Borden case, but I do have listeners outside of the U.S. and who aren't from New England, so I'm just going to do a quick recap of the famous Borden case. I am considering doing a very mega deep dive into the case after my experience of working at the house, but keep it in mind. I don't know if, if people want a super deep dive and my personal experiences at the house, I will do it. Okay. So quick recap. In August of 1892, the father of Lizzie Borden named Andrew Borden and her stepmother, Abby Borden were found brutally slain in their Fall River home. Andrew Borden was a prominent citizen and a businessman. The only people at home at the time of the murders were Lizzie and their Irish maid, Bridget Sullivan. Lizzie was the only suspect ever taken to court despite a few other suspicious characters, including her uncle. Her sister, Emma, was on holiday at the time of the murder. Lizzie was arrested and the trial became a sensation. A church-going woman from a well-to-do family turned axe murderer? Big story. Historians have also noted that the case became so famous because it was one of the first major crimes to be broadcasted across the country. Anywho, like I said, I'm not going to dig too deep. I have way too much to say about it. Due to a lack of evidence, Lizzie was found innocent. However, she did live the rest of her life kind of as an outcast. You know, obviously the townsfolks aren't ever going to think of you otherwise. There are, you know, the famous Lizzie Borden took an axe, gave her father 40 wax, those folk tales and rhymes and everything. So her and her sister actually ended up living in a beautiful Victorian manor called Maplecroft about, I don't know, like a mile away from the murder home. And they lived there together until their last years. They separated due to a falling out, but they ended up dying within days of each other in their 60s. Well, Lizzie was in her 60s. So 
that is the Lizzie Borden story summed up in like a minute. And it's, it's way more complex than that. But like I said, tale for another day. Let's talk about the Borden family history. The Borden family, this is according to a genealogy website. The Borden family is an ancient one, both here in New England and over the water in Old England, as well as one of historic interest and distinction. The New England branch of the Bordens has directly or indirectly traced the lineage of their American ancestor, Richard Borden, many generations back in English history. So after the Battle of Hastings, this Borden ancestor was assigned lands in the county of Kent, where the family became wealthy, influential, and the village they resided in became known as the Borden Village. So there was a John Borden of later generations early in the 17th century who moved to Wales, where his sons Richard and John were married. These sons returned to Borden in England, and in May 1635, they embarked for America. So also according to some other genealogy sites, the Bordens are also direct descendants and cousins from a long line of British royalty. I saw like King Henry, Charlemagne, Anne Boylan, all these very famous historic names. I'm not sure how accurate that is, but just, I don't know, interesting. I'm obviously not a professional. This is all for entertainment. But let's just focus on the Bordens settling in America. So Richard Borden settles in Rhode Island where he's a prominent man and has a bunch of kids who have a bunch of kids. So let's fast forward to the Bordens of note in today's story. So we're going to start in Rhode Island, where they settled in 1673. I also want to note that the Briggs family marries into the Borden family, and the Briggs are another notable name in New England history, along with the Cornells. So today's first story is about Rebecca Cornell Briggs who died in her bedroom in February 1673. After arguing over what was to be served for dinner, Rebecca refused to go downstairs and dine with her son Thomas, his wife Sarah, and their six children. Apparently, this was typical. Thomas and his mother argued very often. During this particular dinner, without anyone hearing screams or smelling smoke, Rebecca somehow burned to death. Her grandson later discovered her charred remains next to her fireplace. Apparently, she had burned to a crisp, but nothing else was touched, almost like a case of spontaneous human combustion. Authorities initially deemed the death an accident. Maybe she fell asleep with her pipe, you know. It was just the 1600s. Shit happens. However, the ghost of Rebecca reportedly appears to her younger brother, John Briggs, and claims that she had been dun-dun-dun murdered. Sorry, I don't know. The goblin is taking over me today. So during this time of colonial history, spectral evidence, as it was called, was taken incredibly seriously. So lawmen actually exhumed Rebecca's body, and a doctor supposedly discovered a puncture wound in Rebecca's stomach. Though they never found a weapon, everyone was suspicious immediately towards her son, Thomas Cornell. Thomas was quick to defend himself, saying his mother was extremely unhappy and often talked about killing herself. However, Thomas and Sarah reportedly declared in public that Rebecca's death made them happy. Sarah supposedly called it a wonderful thing, while Thomas said to have joked that his mother, quote, always liked a good fire and that, quote, God had answered her ends and now she had had it. Which, that's so petty. 
I don't see this as anything more than petty, but, you know, spectral evidence plus shit-talking equals... Well, actually, we'll get to what it equals. All this is happening, and Thomas Cornell was not very well-liked. So they were... The neighbors, that is, were happy to testify against him during the murder trial. His uncle John Briggs also took the stand to swear that Rebecca's ghost had told him she had been murdered. Thomas is found guilty and is promptly executed. At the time, Sarah, Thomas's wife, was pregnant with the couple's seventh child. Shortly after his death, she gave birth to a daughter and named her Innocent. The pettiness continues. Anyway, that's the end of that story. I found it very interesting. Once again, it was in the 1670s, so obviously there aren't a ton of records remaining, but Thomas Cornell is a great-grandfather of Lizzie Borden, according to a genealogy website that I got a lot of this information from. Let's move on to our next Borden tale. So this one takes place a couple hundred years in the future. It is now 1832. This one isn't actually a tragedy. It's just a cool story, cool connection. And it involves my favorite subject, mysterious artifacts. So this is the story of the skeleton in armor who was discovered by Hannah Cook Borden. In 1832, Hannah Cook was digging in the sand, which was then used as a household scourer. So they would collect sand for scouring pots. And when she's digging for this sand she's collecting, she finds the skeleton of a man in a sitting position. The skeleton had a quiver of arrows, a belt of brass tubes along his waist, and was wearing a 13-inch long, 6-inch wide breastplate made of brass. So we've got this cool, mysterious skeleton in armor. And I just want to interject and tell you that when I first heard the story of the skeleton in armor, it consumed me. I just was obsessed with it. There are many theories on who the skeleton in armor was and is. It's important to note that the skeleton was found pretty close to Dighton Rock, which is another mysterious situation. It's a big mysterious rock covered in unknown glyphs. No one can seem to figure out what language they're in, who left them, what they mean. It's like this big New England mystery. And mind you all, this is happening in the Bridgewater Triangle area. And if you aren't familiar with what the Bridgewater Triangle is, it is known as a, quote, paranormal vortex of just a lot of weirdness happening in a kind of concentrated area. Here are some theories on who the skeleton in armor is. Back in the day, it was a popular theory that Phoenicians or Egyptians had at some point discovered North America or the Americas in general. This was used as an attempt to try and explain pyramids that had been found on the continent, but this is obviously like it's a pseudoscience. This is just basically the 1830s version of ancient aliens. And also the state of the body suggests that it could not be more than a couple hundred years old. It clearly was not an ancient body. And Dighton Rock, like I mentioned earlier, was also, it's a really popular belief that it is of Phoenician origin as well. So like I said, we're talking about like vintage ancient aliens vibes, and I'm just going to leave it at that. So another theory is that the skeleton in armor is an early colonist or explorer. But the problem with that theory is the style of armor does not match any known armor of any colonist or explorer of the area, but that can't really be discounted either. 
Nowadays, the most accepted theory is that the skeleton in armor was a Native American warrior or chief. Over the years, similar artifacts made of brass have been found, and colonists were known to trade brass with the Native Americans. And the fact that the skeleton in armor is found in Fall River means that this skeleton most likely belongs to the Wampanoag tribe or the Narragansett tribe. In my personal opinion, this theory makes the most sense. However, there was one more popular theory that the skeleton in armor was a Viking, which is a very problematic theory. I'm going to circle back to this in a moment, but I just want to tell the story because most people, when they Google the skeleton in armor, will come across this famous poem by American poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, who was a New Englander. So he's also enthralled with the skeleton and he writes a poem imagining the skeleton in armor to be a Viking. So the poem makes up this whole story of love and loss, and the skeleton was an, a Viking who killed himself because his lover died or some shit. But this poem blows up. And I just want to note, at the time of the skeleton in armor's discovery and the poem being written about the skeleton, people were obsessed with Vikings, kind of the way we are now. They were just really enthralled with Vikings, and this was a time when they were trying to delegitimize Christopher Columbus, not because he's a horrible, murderer, rapist, awful colonizer, but because he was Italian and Catholic, so that's why they don't like him. And they thought to themselves, you know what? If Leif Erikson were still alive, if the Vikings were still around, they would have been one of us. Listen, I'm not a professional Viking historian. In fact, I know very little about the Vikings and I'm not going to pretend to. But what I do know... See, my dog is upset because she knows this is bullshit. But anyway, I personally think that the last people Vikings would want to hang out with would be waspy Americans. But I don't know. Just That's just me. Anyway... There are also other cases of mysterious artifacts all over New England. They all kind of tie in. Maybe that'll be another episode, but like I mentioned, we've got Dighton Rock. There's also the Knight of, I forget where, but there's like a mysterious knight carved into a rock somewhere. There's American Stonehenge. This all ties in. And basically, sometimes we're dealing with a little bit of a colonial mindset that essentially just takes away credit from the indigenous people of the land, um, like takes discredits their stories, their artifacts, you know, their tools that we've found and says, you know what, someone else must have done this. And that is um, racist. Luckily, modern historians are starting to do the work to decolonize the mindset and really relook into these stories, which is why for the longest time, the skeleton and armor that was found by Hannah Cook Borden was considered a Viking or Phoenician. So our next tragic Borden story is definitely very sad, a little bit triggering, and it's also one I have a very deep connection to. And at this point, we're at 1848, so we're getting close to the Lizzie Borden murders. So without further ado, our next tale is the tragic murder-suicide of Eliza Darling Borden and two of her three children. Some sources say it happened in the same house, but other historians had mentioned it was in the house next door, which is extremely close. So kind of just picture a big family plot of land with multiple homes on it that are actually all still standing today. 
Eliza Darling Borden was married to a great uncle of Lizzie Borden, and Eliza was his second wife out of four. Questionable. Anywho, they had three children in rapid succession, so, you know, back to back to back, and she was reported as having very bad postpartum depression. Of course, like now, honestly, there was absolutely no support at all for women who were suffering from any sort of mental illness, and especially not postpartum depression. In fact, her mental illness and the murder-suicide case was brought up in Lizzie Borden's case. They tried to say that Lizzie had inherited some madness, but Eliza Darling Borden is not related to Lizzie by blood, so that was thrown out. The Eliza Darling Borden case is, like I mentioned, extremely tragic, and the most widely known story is that she drowned two of her three children in the cistern before taking her own life. But the details are cloudy, this is obviously an old story, things have been changed and altered over time. Some stories claim that Eliza did actually kill herself at the Lizzie Borden house in the basement, and then some stories also say that she actually drowned her children in that basement cistern, but other stories say that she did it all in her own house, it's kind of all over the place. I do want to note that when I worked at the house, I met people, like I said, who are big experts on the case, and some people were really adamant that it all happened on that property, but then other people were adamant that it never took place anywhere near the property. All we know is that it did happen. There is a record of this. No shade intended to anyone, but I do want to note that the Lizzie Borden house really pushes the Eliza Borden and her children being ghosts that haunt the house. They really push that. So, you know, obviously people are going to really believe that the case took place on that property. Just throw that in there. And thus concludes the short but tragic tale of Eliza Darling Borden. Like I mentioned earlier, her case was brought up in Lizzie Borden's trial. But I am not done with this story yet because I have a personal connection to this story and I'm about to get a little bit spooky, we're getting a little bit mystical, we're talking about some paranormal stuff, some ghost hunts, it's about to get interesting. I want to talk about a ghost hunt that I partook in at the Borden house where we specifically did try to reach out to Eliza Borden and her children and a bunch of weird shit happened over the course of many days. So one of my first ghost hunts, people were directly trying to reach the children. That usually happens. And somebody brought a toy, a fidget spinner, and reached out to the kids. And I swear on my life, you guys, I swear, this thing was moving by itself. I have it on film. I'm just not allowed to share it because I recorded it while I was working for the home and they owned the footage. But it was the most chilling moment of my life. Regardless of what you believe in, there are many reports of a childlike, mischievous presence in the house that is just kind of known to mess with people in a really harmless way. And that's, it seems like that's what we were experiencing. And uh, the thought that it's not the ghost of a child and something else is fucking horrifying. So I'm just going to tell myself, oh, it's just the sweet little children from the well. They mean no harm. It's not the demon face that shows up in the basement trying to trick us by pretending to be a little kid. There was also another ghost hunt that took place. I actually subbed in for the ghost hunter who called out. I am not trained to do that, but I had filmed so many. I knew like kind of what to do. 
So we kind of have like a girl talk session and we're sitting around the spirit box and we're trying to talk to Eliza and reach out to her in a very personal way. Like, Hey, we're so sorry of, you know, people probably think she's a monster, but she was obviously an extremely mentally ill woman who needed help. And so we reached out to her with that mindset. Like, we're so sorry. You must've been in so much pain. We're so sorry that this happened. Is there anything you want to tell us? And we had a really intense conversation. The spirit box actually told me to shut the fuck up at one point because I was kind of pushing, like, did your husband do this? Or were you in love with someone else? Like, was there an affair? It was kind of leading in the direction of like an affair was happening. And that's what motivated this murder suicide. Um, And then the spirit box told me to shut the fuck up. So we just dropped it. And again, keep in mind, we're all coming from a biased place. I kind of have a belief when it comes to the paranormal that our consciousness, like the living people around are able to influence the spirit box and this and that. So just keep in mind, it's coming from a place of bias. We're making up stories in our head, but it was a very interesting experience. Oh, a girl's hair in my group when we were asking these questions got like lifted up by itself, horror movie style, and somebody got pinched. So it was really creepy. I will say, I will always remember that experience regardless of what it really was. Yeah, so those are the three main boarding connection tales I wanted to share, but um, I saved a surprising relative for the end because this one was the most surprising to me. But Marilyn Monroe is also a descendant of Richard Borden, making her a distant cousin of Lizzie Borden. And we all know her life was also incredibly tragic. And on a not-so-tragic note, a more fun note, The famous actress from Bewitched, Elizabeth Montgomery, is also a Borden relative. She's very closely related to Lizzie Borden, and she actually played her in, I think it was probably the first famous Lizzie Borden movie. And yeah, that is our story, or our stories for today. So like I mentioned earlier, if there is an interest in me doing like a big multi-part deep dive with guests and interviews and really digging into the Lizzie Borden case because it's so complicated. It's so complex. I'm kind of forming this idea right now where I'd love to, you know, A, tell the story with as much historical details that I've gathered as possible because I've listened to multiple podcasts cover the story and a lot of people don't have all the details because they never worked in the house. You know what I mean? I'm really lucky that I have that source, like that experience. The other thing I'm thinking is, Having guests on, I know people who are like legitimate authors and experts in this case, like multiple people, and I'd love to have them on and talk about it. And I would love to talk about my multiple paranormal experiences that I did have at the house. I know many of you would love to hear that. And I have a hard time opening up about them because I want to come off as like a respectable, reasonable skeptic, but there's so much shit that went down there that I truly cannot explain. And I have so many witnesses too. It's just so wild. So I'm like trying to play it cool. But like deep down, I'm like, ghosts, it's spooky. It's haunted. There's shit going down. Um, yeah. So anywho, anyway, thank you all for your support. Um, I know in my last episode, I was talking about how excited I was to reach 1000 plays. We are well over a thousand plays at this point. And what else? What else? I would really love to do some live events, probably like this fall. 
So that's another thing if you're listening and you are interested in something like that, definitely let me know. What else? What else? We're kind of doing like a catch-up corner. This is obviously, like I said, a very relaxed episode. I'm kind of winging it today. I didn't really write that much down. We're going on vibes. Jesus has taken the wheel. Jesus or like some demon probably actually has taken the wheel at this point. Oh no, it's the goblin. The goblin who lives inside my flesh suit has taken the wheel and we're just ranting today. If you want to email me, the email is thenewenglandgothic at gmail.com. Our Instagram is thenewenglandgothic and I'm on TikTok as creepycaitlin. It's C-A-I-T-L-I-N. And yeah, I think that's enough. Oops, before I go, I just want to sign off. (laughs) My name is Kate Ford, and this has been the New England Gothic.